0: Warning! The Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch, contains adult content. Harry and others use profanity, adult language, and discuss adult topics. And so shall we. One more warning! This podcast may contain spoilers.
1: I must stress this for this chapter and the entire podcast, so please proceed with
0: extreme caution. That sounds good, but let's see what happens. After she left the kitchen for the bedroom, Posh called the bureau, and Edgar picked up. Posh deepened his voice and said, Yeah, you know that thing you showed on TV? The one got no name? Yes, can you help us? Sure can. Posh covered his mouth with his hand to hold back the laughter. He
1: realized he hadn't thought up a good punchline. His mind raced as he tried to decide what it should be.
0: Well. Who is it, sir? Edgar said impatiently. It's, 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 it's who, sir? It's Harvey Pounds in drag.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch. I'm Philip Parker, a retired police detective. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And please rate us five stars or better. Please follow us on Twitter at The Thin Blue Lion Pod and our Facebook and Instagram pages, which are set up just for our fans. Also, join us at www.thethinbluelinepod.com for more investigative content where you will find more detailed experience concerning Harry Bosch and Michael Connolly. Now all that's out the way, it's time to get back to work and probe into chapters 5 through 8 of The Concrete Blonde. Last time on the Thin Blue Lion podcast, Harry Bosch, we explored how whoever fights monsters should see to it in the process. He doesn't become a monster. Shape chapters 1 through 4 of The Concrete Blonde. And today we will be taking a deep dive into chapters five through eight. As always, there's the prerequisite spoiler alert. It's my intention to stay away from spoilers, but sometimes shit happens. So please proceed with caution. And now, the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch.
0: Let's open up the murder book
1: and turn the page to the chronological records so that we can do an investigative summary of the information gathered thus far in this chapter. Harry dresses carefully for the court, and just as he was leaving, Sylvia shows up at the door. They had progressed to a comfortable place in their relationship but Harry was still afraid that one day she'd leave him. Sylvia wants to be in court to support Bosch, but Harry discourages her. They talk for a few moments and leave, Bosch heading for court and Sylvia to her job as a teacher. At court, Sharon asks for sanctions against Harry and his attorney because an article in the Times regarding a new body that was found. Judge Keyes asked Belk, who claims he had no prior knowledge and Harry confirms that he had no opportunity to share the information with his lawyer. Chandler goes back to the lector and asks for a subpoena concerning a note that was left for Harry that detailed the whereabouts of the Concrete Blonde. Judge Keith orders Belk to produce the letter so he can evaluate it before granting Chandler's subpoena. During lunch break, Harry drives to the Garmick District to a restaurant that serves breakfast. He sits down and picks up a copy of the Times that was left behind. Berman's byline contains information about the latest body that can only come from an inside source. Harry calls Edgar and asks him about Harvey Pounds and his behavior the day before. Edgar confirms that Pounds has spent time in his office with the door closed while he was on the phone. This is unusual for him as Pounds tends to be on the paranoid side and likes to leave his door and blinds open. Edgar tells Bosch that the media will run a likeness of the dead woman on the evening news and hopes to identify her. Edgar then asks Bosch for help to man the phones afterwards. Back in court, Miss Church takes the stand and states that Norman Church was a loving man who cared deeply for his two daughters, his mother and his mother-in-law. Ms. Church also stated that she was aware that her husband had rented an apartment for the purpose of needing space. Belk asked Mrs. Chandler why she hadn't told the police on the night in question that she had knowledge of the apartment. Ms. Chandler stated that she had lied out of fear of the police. Chandler then called a lab analyst from the coroner's office named Victor D'Amato, who testified that a DNA comparison could not be done and the fact that Norman Church had shaved all his hair from his body to include pubic hairs, rendering a rape kit useless. After court, Bosch shows up to help man the phones as he had promised in hopes they can identify the blonde victim. Harry then puts a quick call in to Sylvia and tells her where he is and admits he might not make her place at all if they get any leads. Airplay is good and the phones begin to ring almost immediately. Some callers are jerks claiming it's your mother or similar comments. One or more callers claim that she is a porn star After leaving the PD and en route to Sylvia's, Bosch makes a detour to an adult film store and attempts to identify the concrete blonde. Bosch is successful at getting the name of Magna Cum Lowly as the decedent. Upon arrival to Sylvia's house, Sylvia apologizes for earlier behavior and explains that she missed Bosch. Bosch eats and then calls Jared Edgar and tells him what he found. He asks Edgar if he managed to reach out to any vice guys, but Ray Moore has already gone for the day. Harry offers to contact him, and Edgar eagerly agrees, knowing that the vice guy and Harry knew each other from before. Harry calls Moore, and Moore agrees to look up the name Magna Cum loudly. After the phone call with Moore, Sylvia and Harry begin to make love. Sylvia tells Harry she loves him. Harry was in the Temple of home he thought, but did not say. I love you, he thought, but did not say. And I guess us to this episode's big idea. So let's lift up the yellow tape and examine the clues. For the defining theme for chapters five through eight is, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean you're wrong. Hello, and welcome back to the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch. And today we start this episode off with uh, Harry um, getting dressed to go to court. And again, I love the connectivity between the books so far, and he's getting dressed with the tie clip that has 187, which is, you know, um, California's um, code for
0: murder. And, oh. Like, I put this out on Facebook, just let you guys know, because it's funny
1: how I haven't seen too much talk about this, but, again, the book Harry has a mustache, and the TV Harry does not have a mustache. And I do remember Michael Connolly talking about that in some interview or something, but, again, when I, I don't know about you, but when I first start reading this book, it's easy for me to visualize somebody. And who I visualized was um, Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood has always been um, a favorite of mine ever since he started doing uh, westerns. After he started doing westerns, uh, I just, you know, envisioned Clint Eastwood, or I just like Clint Eastwood. So when I got a description of Harry, I I thought of Clint Clint Eastwood automatically. And one of Michael Connolly's books was turned into a movie, which is Bloodwork, and then Clint Eastwood played in that. So it was easy to make that, uh, connect, that connection. And evidently, uh, Michael Connolly thought so, too, because they were able to cast uh, Clint Eastwood in that movie. And, you know, we start to see some fractures. Again, I said it last podcast, of Harry keeping Sylvia at a distance. And even here, uh, as the book starts, you know, they're talking. And again, from the book, he has secrets. Many of them buried too deep to give to her. Not so soon. Now, look, they've been dating for a year. And Harry's secrets are so deep that he can't trust Sylvia for a year. And, you know, and then it kind of reminds me of what Bosch said to uh, Chief Irving in um, The Black Ice. Again, quote, unquote. Trust goes two ways. So there's lack of trust. And Harry's lack of trust to Sylvia, and again, you can see it coming, it's going to be a problem later on. I mean, as no spoilers. That's not a spoiler. I mean, anyone can see that. And so, so then we get into the courtroom. And again, I think Michael, this is not too hard. He had been a reporter, so he probably sat in on a number of court cases. And this type of judge, Judge Keys, was a by the book type of judge. Knowing that he doesn't strike me as a type of guy who runs late, and the fact that he's running late automatically would put me on tilt. Like, oh shit, what's going on? Because I, again, I, as I said last podcast, I know um, and work with judges like Judge Keys, and their courtroom was regimented, like clockwork. You didn't come in late, you know, and he was, he was very, very formal. Everything was regimented. You don't fuck around. So the fact that he comes out late, you knew something was going on. And, you know, one of the things that I like also what happened, again, just to give you guys some context. So Judge was late because of the article. Someone had leaked information that another female had died and it had the same monikers as the, as the doll maker. And so Keys got this information and he was re- evidently he was reading about it. And Chandler, you know, gets up and she wants to file sanctions against Belk and Bosch for not notifying her and the court in a, in a timely manner. You know, remember, last podcast, remember that Bosch tried to tell Belk everything, but he, he chose not to listen. And he wanted to deny anything, so he, quote unquote, chose not to listen, which technically he's still, you know, he's still responsible He's still responsible. If a law enforcement officer is trying to give uh, a U.S. attorney or attorney some information about the case, they're obligated to listen and then to act. But what's even screwed up about this is that Belk left Bosch out there uh, high and dry because he skirted the truth a little bit, he told the truth, but bent this a little bit. Um, And what happened next is again, this happened to me because when there's a dispute between um, accounts that the attorneys did here back and forth, judges would turn around to you as a law enforcement officer and they would question you directly. And at that, that time, Harry did a good job of covering Belk and not lying so much because even keeves you know, kind of again gave him, a, gave him a look like, dude, you're really stretching the truth here. But Harry's probably been, well, let, let's set aside Harry. For me, again, is all about your reputation. And your reputation precedes you. And judges, just like cops, just like everyone else, they talk amongst them, uh, amongst each other. And if you're known to stretch the truth, and if you're known to give judges um, bogus information, especially when it comes to trying to get some type of judicial action, like a search warrant or something to that effect, an arrest warrant, and you, you have a reputation for, quote-unquote, playing loose and fast with the truth or fast and loose, Fast and loose with the truth, then your reputation, the judges will give you a hard time on everything. I mean, I had judges again you you can't, again, they held you to the task. let me let me they held you to the task. Let me be on um, let me not give you uh, the false sense of you can go in there with anything you want and they just sign it. But you have it's a foundation, and I think I hope I'm giving it justice. It's a foundation. The judge knew you, you knew the judge, and you knew especially you knew what they wanted. Um, like one of the judges, when I was giving warrants, he hated the fact that I always applied for electronic devices and warrants and without having some type of context with it. And again, not to get too legal about it, but, you know, I used to throw a line in there. You know, I knew criminals converse with cell phones back and forth. So I'm asking for during the search warrant, any electronic devices, blah, 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 blah. A lot of judges, some judges had no problem with that, but some judges that you knew you're about to go in front of hated that. And so if you went in front of them with that loose information, they would cross that out on your application on um, which you can search for. But knowing that, if you went in there and you at least gave it a a, a good effort when it comes to building probable cause to get that particular aspect of your warrant signed, most judges will let you do it. Again, if you have a good relationship with the uh, judge, those type of judgment calls about you and what you're applying for goes a long way. Again, this whole aspect of the judge asking Harry a direct question, that happens all the time in court. They will ask you, especially when it comes to certain aspects of your investigation, do you concur with that uh, officer? You, know, they'll ask you directly, like look over the, the attorney and look right at you and say, hey, do you, you have a problem with what's going on here? Because the attorney's making all these things, but I'm going to hold you accountable if some things aren't done correctly. And, you know, another thing that happened was the judge said, you know, about, talked about withholding evidence. Judge Keyes really talked about withholding evidence. And he's right. So as I was said last podcast, the, some of the AUSAs I dealt with, they were not, they didn't play around with turnover and discovery, They uh, uh, evidence for discovery. They didn't play. And again, as I told you before, I tried to investigate cases so I didn't have to go to trial, which means I tried to have so much evidence, so much overwhelming evidence that a defendant had to really think hard about fighting that amount of evidence to go to trial. Of course, they have every right to go to trial. But I like getting evidence to defense as soon as possible because I didn't have anything to hide. It is what it is. And so we, you know, again, my peer group, and I said my peer group, the youth attorneys I dealt with, the officers I dealt with, we didn't have a problem with um, turnover and discovery. There's a lot of things you can do wrong um, in court. That one ranks up there really high of big no-nos. And did everyone pick up on the fact how? Michael Connolly kept making reference to Belk's weight. And I took it as not just he was because his girth, his over, he was over, overweight as any slight of large people. I took it as though he he represented the laziness or the other extreme when it came to different attorneys, especially government attorneys, and not really being hungry and lean and mean. and not to give away too much, but in one of Michael's books later on, he talks about that. As a matter of fact, pick up the Lincoln Lawyer. He actually, you know, talks about that aspect of government attorneys and private attorneys. And you know what? I think I have a couple of attorneys who listen to this podcast. Or any other cops, but do you, every cop knows this line? And I want to know, do they get this line from judge school or something like that? You know, "quote unquote," I'm bringing the jury, we're losing the morning. Again, that's just another. I've heard. I don't know how many times I heard that in court. That's just another example how Michael and his writing is so authentic because I've heard that a thousand times. You know, bailiff bringing the jury, we're losing the morning. And again, talking about representations, so uh, Lieutenant Terry Lloyd gets on the stand and he's talking about he was a lieutenant during the um, Dollmaker case and he had two squads, blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. But one of the things that I took from his testimony is being overconfident. Because if you're overconfident when you're testifying, the, the most innocent thing you say can be turned around and twisted I never had testified. Every time I testified, I had butterflies in my stomach. Every time. I testified a number of times. But I can tell you right now, every time I got on the stand, I had butterflies in my stomach. Now, of course, I got more comfortable as I, you know, it was, it was ex- cross-examined and, and gave my testimony. But every time. But Terry Lloyd here, Lieutenant Lloyd, actually, to me, represents not seeing guys get up on that stand, and they they're overconfident, and then they don't, see it coming. They don't see it coming at all, and they get crushed. You know, one of the things also that Chandler brought up was the fight between federal attorneys, excuse me, federal agencies and state and local agencies. And again, so far, we've had, you know, this is the third book, and it's come up in three different books so far, at least talking about the enmity between the federal agencies, law enforcement agencies, and state and locals. And i talked about that before in another podcast. But, again, it's such, and it still happens today, it's so pervasive. that Again, Michael Conley has brought that up in, again, the third book so far that he has. And he must have seen a lot when he was embedded with LAPD. And we see here that Brimmer has a number of informants in uh, LAPD. And so it wasn't just Harry as in, in the Black Echo. Harry wasn't Bremer's only informant. He also made reference to Bremer and his other informants back in the Black Echo. Again, again I love that continuity. And again, that, that makes me feel good. I love, this is one of the things I like about Michael Connelly's writing is that continuity, make a reference. And again, it's very sleight of hand. It's not over the top. It's very sleight of hand reference to prior books. And we're going to talk about this during the question of the day. But again, Harry's surprised that Jerry Edgar is manning the phones. And the fact that Jer- Jerry Edgar is proving that he is a good investigator. He's a great investigator. And again, like I said last podcast, you know, do you care what he's motivated about? Do you care that he's motivated because of the mission? Or do you care that he's motivated about the money? Or do you want, at the end of the day, he's a good investigator and can get the job done. So he's proving that he is um, he's a good investigator. And so we see paranoia is starting to set in on Bosch because he's questioning uh, Edgar concerning P- Pounds and Pounds' location. Was he talking um, in his office with the, phone, with the door shut? Was he, you know, being typical pounds, or did he seem nervous? Because he's trying to figure out, okay, what the hell's going on? Because someone's leaking information to Bremer, and it's fucking him, as he said, you know, he's screwing him over, or somebody's trying to burn him. So you start seeing the first signs of paranoia coming in. And again, I get it. Because he is, his foundation is starting to get shook. He knew without a shadow of a doubt he shot the right guy. He got the right guy when it came to who was the doll maker. But now all these l- little things are starting to creep in. So you start seeing this paranoia starting to set in on, uh, um, starting to set in on um, Bosch. And, you know, not only is paranoia starting to set in, but we start to seeing Harry starting to take Sylvia for granted. Now, remember, Edgar has, has set up a media exposure or media play, excuse me, for the plaster that he developed, you know, the plaster image of the concrete blonde. And when Edgar, uh, excuse me, when Bosch talks to Edgar, Edgar said, hey, uh, we probably can use the help manning the phones. And, you know, Bosch had previous plans with Sylvia that night. And he goes, "Uh, well, she'll understand, she'll understand to himself. He
0: says that to himself, thinking about, again, canceling on Sylvia for having dinner plans.
1: So, back at court, Michael actually gives a great example of why you need to have a, or have your lead investigator at the table with you. Again, from the book, I'm going to paraphrase, but pretty much Norman Church's uh, wife is on the stand. She's giving an account of the apartment and talking about the apartment and that Norman was a nice guy. And this lady was probably his first time doing that. And she set him up, you know because he was kind of naive. So while she's telling her story, while she's giving her testimony, Bosch writes a little note down and slides it over to Belk, who reads it. Then he writes his own notes down. And so after she finishes her testimony with, with Chandler, Belk gets up there, and Belk pretty much destroys her in a sense of talking about the apartment and her knowing about the apartment and the whole nine yards, because then Belk says to her, well, if you knew about it, why was the department in a different name or alias? And then that gave, that told the lie to her story. And again, the attorneys know your case, but you know it better than them. And again, you are the client for the government, and you should know the ins and outs of your case. And this is, again, another example why, and or you need to have your lead investigator at the table at the head table, because of this exact um, example, because this is very fluid. I mean, Belk couldn't say, hold on, Your Honor, and rush back out there, talk to Harry, Said, hey, she's saying this or saying that, or Harry wasn't in the courtroom. He wouldn't be able to see that to then give the information to Belk so he could then use it for his benefits. And that was just a good example why you need to have your lead investigator at the table. So then we also, what I like about what Michael does here, is he also gives you example of everyone makes mistakes, and Honey Chandler made a mistake when she talked to uh, talked about the rape kit. And the fact of the matter is that there would not be a comparison with the uh, rape kit information off of some of the victims of the doll maker is because Norman Church had completely shaved himself to include his pubic hair, but Chandler messed up by bringing that out first thinking that the government had overlooked it so she was going to use that information again one of the lines in the book is you don't ask questions that you don't that you're that the witness that you don't know what the witness is going to say attorneys you normally do not ask questions they don't know what the witness is going to say and if you do that you do that your uh, you do that at your own peril and we see Chandler actually made a mistake here
0: because she did not know the answer to what the uh, witness was going to say. And one of the things I like that Michael
1: Conley did here was getting brought back a little bit more, brought back some nostalgia for me. Because after court, Harry then goes to Hollywood Division so he can sit down and help out manning the phones. And before he sits down, he checks the message, the message box. And, you know, you're, you had your name and... It was just, just a little slit and all your information, all your telephone messages or any type of communications was put in that particular message box. And it sat on top of the file cabinet. And, and I remember seeing when you know, I read this, I was like, oh, man, that brought back memories because that we had the same message box. You know, again, this is a, again, a testament to Michael Connolly being embedded with law enforcement because he probably saw that and, and he's writing about it. And I think that's pretty cool. So Michael Conley also gets us into, he's starting to, it's starting to build up. Again, I'm feeling this momentum and I'm seeing this train coming down the track because now he also gets us into the relationship that's starting to fray a little bit between Harry and Sylvia. Because before the phone calls ring, before the phone calls start ringing, before the media post up the actual plaster of the likeness of the uh, concrete blonde, Harry gives Sylvia a call and says something to the effect, you know, hey, I'm going to be helping answer the phones. If something comes up, um, I'll let you know. If it's nothing, I'll be right there. If it's something, we got to do some follow-up. And Sylvia calls him out. She says to him, you know, sometimes it feels like you just want to be left alone. You want to stay in this little house on the hill and keep the whole world out, including me. And now you're starting to see, okay, Harry. And again, I'm saying to myself, okay, Harry. You know, you've already mentioned again in last book in the Black Um Ice and earlier in this book that she's a great woman. But you're doing the exact same thing. Now you're starting to see maybe this is what Cal Moore did to lose her. Because having that type of spouse or having that type of significant other, they give you a lot of leeway, but certain things that you certain barriers you cannot cross. And it look like Harry is coming up, coming to those barriers. One of those barriers is Intimacies in a sense of openness And doesn't seem like Harry Really wants to be that open with Sylvia I mean he is but he isn't he's holding back You know he's he's starting to find Excuses not to see her to take a quick break and go over the question of the day. And the question of the day for chapters 5 through 8 says, during various times, Harry makes note that Jerry Eggers is motivated more by overtime than a mission concerning investigating homicides. Question, does this matter? And one, the one answer was, no, as long as he's doing his job or yes, it's a mission, not a job. And so, seventy-four percent of you said yes. It does matter. It's a mission, not a job. I'm. I'm going to be honest. I'm under. I'm in the minority here. Maybe I'm being cynical, but I really don't care. What I said it before last podcast, and I'm. I know it would be easy to go with the seventy-four percent um, of you guys, but I. I have to be honest with you. As long as Jerry Edgar is doing his job, I really don't care. Just do your job, dude give me a Jerry Edgar any day because we have people who just are there just buying time or filling the space filling fill the void and you don't trust them to do your, do their work Again, again Jerry's competent he's doing his good job so I'm going to have to be in the minority with that and you know I also again want to say thank you thank you for listening to this podcast thank you for your feedback and you're participating in the, in the polls and the questions I get asked. So, thank you again so much for you guys supporting this podcast. And if you can continue to promote us with your friends and family, as you as you know, we're on Google, Spotify, um, iTunes, and we're on iHeartRadio. All those different things. So, but all that's possible because you guys take the time to listen. And again, give feedback. So thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And as I always say, I sound like I'm rambling, so let's move on. And you know one of the things. So after Harry finished talking to Sylvia, and they the media chose the plaster of the uh, concrete blonde, they started
0: getting a number of phone calls, start filling phone calls. And Michael Connolly does a great job of describing
1: what some callers come in, call in, and what you get on the other end because you get these crazy calls and you get these crazy people. Some people, again, are just, they want to be um, in with the police, law enforcement, so they come up with some BS story. Like this one lady, you know, she thought she was a psychic in a whole nine yards. And then, or well, some people will give you good information, but they think if I give you too much good information, then you might investigate me. And again, Harry said, look, I'm like, well, one of the examples I'm talking about here is one of the guys recognized uh, the concrete blonde as a mag uh, Maggie and at an adult film store. He saw her in an adult film store, but then he stopped the, the information because he then probably he perceived that law enforcement would then come after him and he wanted to give that information up. And Harry says, look, dude, I don't give a darn about you. I'm not going to investigate you. Just be a little bit more specific so then we could follow up on information. Remember, you called us. So if you called us, you want to help out, we appreciate it, but give me a little bit more information so that I could uh, properly identify her. Okay, I want to give you guys an example of what I mean by these cop geeks that Harry was talking about. Okay, so... After I got certified to ride by myself, and again I've talked about riding by yourself in the podcast, but one of the first things I get was I get a call to this one apartment, and I get a call to this one apartment, and you know the lady it was to investigate, um, to investigate the trouble. It was something where you can ride by yourself, so uh, that's not important. But whatever the call was, I could ride by myself. I didn't need a partner to ride there with me. So I, I get there and I go knock on the door, and this lady opens the door, and she has this
0: red negligee on, see-through, and I'm like, uh, uh, you call the police, and she says, yes,
1: I need you to come in, and I need to talk about stuff about what's going on, and I looked around, I'm like, um, 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 and I started just stammering, it, you know she was talking about i i can't even remember what she was talking about i did not go into that house Well, it was apartment i did not go into the apartment i took my notebook out and i tried to be as professional as i could but again she's in a red see-through negligee and yes you can see everything <laughs> so i i wrote something down in my in my in my in my pad you know because cops kept it a little pad and I walk downstairs. And when I walk downstairs, my whole squad is out front and they're dying laughing. They are dying laughing. And that call, because that young lady called the police all the time. And if you didn't know, when you that call, she's one of those cop geeks. And she got off on that was her thing about with cops. <laughs> and, I mean, you should see my whole scout car, I mean, my whole squad was just rolling. Ha, ha,
0: ha, Phil, my
1: goodness. I, I tell that story because, well, with cops, we do some crazy things to each other, you know, when it comes to practical jokes. But that one right there was
0: an example of what cop geeks, you know, are. So after the phone stopped ringing,
1: Bosch says, hey, look, I'm going to go and um, I'm going to leave. And he's headed over to Sylvia's house. But then before, he, he has this epiphany. So he takes out, you know, he go gets a Polaroid and takes a picture of the plaster. He said he has an idea. Now, one, the Polaroid, I mean, I remember having a Polaroid. And just think about that. Back in 94, did we have Polaroids? You know, now we have cell phones that take phenomenal pictures and qualities, but back then it was all Polaroids, and we used to get cases of these doggone Polaroid. You know, I think it was, you can do 10, 10 shots in one Polaroid. I think that's what it was. But Bosch takes a picture of the, of, the, uh, of the plaster, and then he has an epiphany. He's going to stop at an adult store because one of the witnesses, excuse me, one of the call-ins said that you know she was in the adult film industry. And so Bosch goes and he stops at the, 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 he stops at the X mark marks the spot. And one of the things that he did that I wanted to sh- point out to you guys was he didn't just pull up to the front of the place and get out and then go right in. He pulled up and waited and be- get a lay of land. Again, that's just one of those little nuances that you get that Michael Conley had inside information because, you know, you see it on TV, the police, the first thing, they go to an establishment to do a follow-up. They pull right up to the establishment and walk in with their with the chest out like, yeah, that don't happen that way. And what, how the way Michael exp- explained it here is the way that we typically r- drove up to a place, especially a place uh, that, that's seedy like this and we didn't know about. Yeah, you're going to pull up get a lay of the land before you just walk in there. And, you know, Michael Conley also gives a good example, or gives give a good description of what a duster was. And the bouncer guy in this ex marks spot guy um, reeked and smelled. If you go to the website, I put a link there talking about what a duster is and angel dust. Well, a duster stands for angel, angel dust. That's what they called it. And so that's just abbreviated duster. And again, one of the gang's, the authenticity of Michael Connelly's writing is he had a line in here, again, from the book, like most cops, he had did a stint in um, Vice. So
0: one of the things happened to me, again, I'm just telling this story, is so when I first got over, again, I'm I'm older than my brother and, and my father's a cop, you know that.
1: And so when I became a cop, I get assigned to the precinct, and my father's, you know, before you get certified to ride by yourself, you have to drive through, you have have to do, as as Bosch said here, a stint in different facets of the district so that you can be a well-rounded patrol officer. And one of the units that you had to do a little stint, quote-unquote, in was vice. And I loved it. I loved Vice. And I remember I, I, uh, after I got out, after I did my first couple of times with it, I went home, I, I talked to my father. I said, hey, I went to this, you know, I'm in Vice doing Vice work right now before I get certified. I love it. It's great. My father had this look on his face like, yeah, do not go to Vice. I'm like, why not? Because Vice work is too much trouble. There's always problems. A lot of cops get in trouble with Vice. Do not
0: go to Vice. I go, okay, so what does a good son do? Listen, what do
1: you think I did? Yeah, I, I went to Vice. <laughs> I think, if, you know, he if my, if my father didn't learn a lesson, you know, as kids. You know what we do. Our parents say don't do something. The first thing we're going to do is do it. So I stayed at Vice in 20, 28 years later, 28 years in Vice working. <laughs> Boy, I know he was—he was hot. Can I tell you when I when I tell you, he was so. But but it, got, it, it gets even worse. So I was at I was in vice work at the at the district, but then, may um major narcotics came available, and so I doubled down. <laughs> I doubled down. I put in for it. I got a position in major narcotics. <laughs> so My father was on. When he first, first said, don't go to Vice, stay in patrol, get patrol, you know, become a sergeant, lieutenant, captain, move up the ranks. Like, yeah, 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 whatever. I stayed in Vice, and then the opening came up in Major Narcotics. I put in for that, and I get assigned to Major Narcotics. (laughs) So, (laughs) parents, well, all parents know this. Hey, I'm a parent. I know this myself. If you don't want your kids to do something, that's the last thing to say, don't do that. Because guess what they're going to do? So then we see Harry arise to uh, arrive to uh, Sylvia's place. Harry is enjoys the home life, I use home in quotes, that Sylvia provides. And you know, that's one of the things that Harry loves about her,
0: that easiness, that feeling of making him feel like he's at home. And again, some inside
1: information or this insight that Michael Conley has because he describes something that Sylvia does that is truly, if you're a spouse or significant other of a police officer, this happens all the time. This happens all the time with my wife and I. You know, Harry and um, uh, Sylvia are talking, and Sylvia asks him about his day, and something happened, and she, you know, boss said, oh, yeah, I have to talk to um, Ray Moore at Advice. And Sylvia makes the jump. Oh, you know, really quick. She was, a, um, she was in porno? And again, they've been around Sylvia's been around police work enough to make those leaps. Again, because it is is, you know, as opposed to Harry having to go back and say, okay, what's advice and why is that important? And the whole nine yards. Just like a cop, if you say, Oh, I gotta talk to somebody advice about a victim, like, okay, she's important or she's why Because why else would you want to talk to Ray Moore or or someone advice? Again, that's a great insight of
0: law enforcement life that Michael Connelly is depicting here in the book. And another thing that Michael Connolly
1: describes is Sylvia knowing not to ask so much. You know, it's a fine line, but, you know, a lot of things we don't tell, cops don't tell their spouses for their protection. But we do tell, to tell them some things, and it's a very delicate balance. And she knew enough to say, you know, to stop asking questions without by saying, "Look, I can't tell you anymore." And again, that's practice. That's that comes with tried and true practice with being a spouse of a law enforcement um, personnel. And again, Michael Connolly does a great job of um of describing that scenario again, which happened to me all the
0: time. <laughs> you know, so one of the things that. Harry does here is he
1: calls into Edgar to check in with Edgar and he makes a prank phone call to Edgar about, you know, um, you know, he says hard pounds and drag. So, he, <laughs> so cops, we play a lot of practical jokes on each other and I can tell you a thousand, but this one just just stood out to me. I had a, my car was what we call an undercover car, a soft car. did look, it did not look like a police car. And so,
0: one day, I'm driving in my car, and somebody honks the horn at me and waves at me.
1: I'm like, "What the hell? What the hell?" I, mean, I wave back, like, "Hey, oh, how you doing?" At first, and then I get another honk, and someone waves at me. I'm like, "What the hell?" You know, first of all, why are people honking at me? So I get to the office, I get to the station, and I get someone. I go get my. Um, my laptop out
0: of the back, out of my trunk. And as I looked down, somebody had taped on the back of my bumper,
1: honk if you're horny. <laughs> so, and I knew who it was. There's this one guy in our office is a freaking practical joker. He has, he's gotten me so many times that's unbelievable, but I got him back a couple of times too. Just you know, you know, you got to you give it, you're going to get it back. But he's gotten me more times than I've gotten him. He's very, very, very sophisticated with his practical jokes. But again, so, but it's silly, it's stupid. Um, honk if you're horny. It's really stupid, just like Harry and Edgar. You know, when it talks to when 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 Michael was describing Harry calling into. Uh, the um, line to talk to Edgar, uh, talk, calling into Hollywood to talk to Edgar. It was stupid, it's childish, but it's a way to break the ice. You know, things get especially when things get really tense. You know, you fall back. You need some levity to make it through. Everything can't be so serious that you, you that you can't find some humor and some some crazy stuff. And cops, you know, we're very. We, you know, just like anyone else, you, you're you trying to break the ice. You're just trying to have some semblance of peace or some type of humanity. And those little stupid things like that really help you through, especially some bad days. Again, honk if you're horny. And that was one of the best things. You know, I, I wanted to kill a guy. I don't want to say his name because he's still working, but he knows who he is. And, you know, he. but he got me a, a, on a lot of things. And something else um, from the book, there were rumors floating around the department that Moore had gotten too close to his subjects that he was an expert in. This was a common cop malady. And again, I told to you about that. My father hit the roof when he found out that I was gonna to go to Vice, because I see a lot of police officers get in a lot of trouble by working Vice work. And again, Michael Connelly does a great job with saying it, it's, it's plain and simple. It was a common cop malady. It happened all the time. And my father was trying his best to um, steer me away from Vice so I wouldn't get in trouble. And I'll oh, 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 let you know also, too, yeah, my brother did the same thing. <laughs> he doubled. So not only did I do Vice work, my brother did the same thing.
0: Oh, boy. What, what sons do to their fathers, right? Again, one of the things that Michael does here is this
1: line that Moore asks Bosch, quote unquote, do we fuck up? Now, most people, most cops, when there's bad, something bad like this happened, they're running away. Is your, again, is your baby, your case, your problem? And again, remember back in, chapter, back, uh, back in chapter two, Bosch had said something to the, again, from the book that hung out there in momentary silence, like dog shit on the sidewalk. Everyone walks carefully around it without looking too closely at it. Again, and Bosch kind of was impressed and appreciated Moore saying that we, to include him, everyone thought that they got the right guy. But the fact that Moore was, you know, pretty much owning up to, if there was a mistake, I was part of it because I thought the guy did it too. Again, Michael Connolly is giving you guys Insight to law enforcement and the ins and outs
0: the day-to-day problems that that cops go through and as we end this uh, this podcast, we really see how we start to really get to understand
1: who Harry is because again he has this phenomenal significant other you know Sylvia and but we see At times he's distant, you know. He's been dating her for a year, but she still doesn't feel that close to him. Or when she starts getting close to him, he pulls back. Again, she's expressed that you know
0: he looks like he wants to stay in his little house on the hill. And again, from the book, "I love you, Harry," she said. He rolled
1: onto her and kissed her deeply, letting her taste the red wine and the feel of her warm skin take him away from the worries and the images. Of violent ends.
0: He was in the temple of home, he thought, but didn't say. I love you, he thought, but did not say. Why is Harry not telling her he loves her? Why is Harry not giving this woman? I mean, I, I mean it's rhetorical.
1: And we're gonna get into that later. But I love that passage. I love this ending of this uh, of chapter eight here in the concrete blonde because Michael is setting us up to start answering some questions about Harry. to this episode's Everyone Counts or No One Counts. My Everyone Counts or No One Counts person for chapters 5 through 8 of The Concrete Blonde is Jerry Edgar. So, let me explain why I'm picking Jerry Edgar. Because Jerry, as Bosch has said before, that he had trained Jerry Edgar but he never thought that Jerry Edgar had the mission inside him opposed to being motivated by money or profit. So let's put the reason that his motivation out the way. You can see he's picked up on some of Harry's traits when it comes to investigative technique. Because it was Jerry who, it was his case, of course, but he had the idea of getting the cast of the victim inside the concrete. And it was his idea to then call an anthropologist over to then do the facial recon- uh, facial makeup of the of the decedent for this um for the plaster mold. And he's the one who had the idea of putting it out in the media that then led to so far of this individual being identified. At least we have a stage name of Maggie and she was in the porno industry. So Jerry Edgar has moved the ball forward, has moved the concrete blonde investigation forward. So that's why for chapters five through eight of The Concrete Blonde, Jared Edgar is my Everyone Counts or No One Counts person. That concludes chapters five through eight review of The Concrete Blonde. Thanks for hanging out with me. And also I ask you to continue to go to Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and continue to rate us five stars or better. And if you can keep leaving those comments because those comments are valuable and I appreciate the feedback. And also could you continue sharing this podcast with your friends and family so we can continue to grow. Lastly, don't forget to join us at www.thethinbluelinepod.com for more investigative content, where you'll find more detailed experience concerning Michael Conley and Harry Bosch. So next up on the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch, We'll continue our deep dive into The Concrete Blonde, chapters 9 through 12. I'm 10-7 for the remainder.